What's your last name, Michael? Goldgaber. Goldgaber. Okay, cool. Hello, welcome to the Canadian Specific Podcast, not specifically about Canada. You got me, your host, Jane Marshall. I'm here today with my wife, Victoria Marshall, and Michael, oof, he just told me his last name. Goldgaber. Goldgaber, perfect, perfect. Um, and, well, we're going to talk about some stuff. How, uh, how are you doing? It's been a little while since I've seen you. Yeah, Jaden, it's uh, great to be here, uh, and it's good to meet Victoria. Uh, we were just talking about uh, the summer downstairs, that she's really enjoying Abu Dhabi, but I warned her that in two months, that opinion will change when the real heat comes. Yes, yes. I've been told that this is a very special beginning of April, uh, and to enjoy it, because typically it is not this windy, and it is not this pleasant to be outside after 9 p.m., or 9 a.m., I guess. What uh, What is April usually like here? Um the thing is, is, it usually starts to get humid, so we actually have a pretty good year so far. I think it started to get warm last year uh, quite early, um, so I was worried there were going to be humidity, because the heat's not, not the problem. It's just that when it's hot and wet, I mean, mm-hmm. it's never going to be Southeast Asia. It's never going to be that bad, but it does get pretty bad. So people who do come here off-season... They love it because you can always swim every day, you know, and she's like, this is amazing. I can walk around in my shorts. And then you're like, and you get let down, right? And then you get really angry with yourself and you realize why everyone goes on holiday <laughs> during the summer. And then, you know, comes around November, December, and you're loving it again. So honestly, it's not bad where we only have three bad months. Fair enough. Um, so, I mean, I've met you uh, a few times here. You just met my wife. Why don't, uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Michael, and I've been here for about three years, uh, born in the Soviet Union, uh, which is now Russia, uh, immigrated to America when I was about four, um, lived in Maryland. Uh, my dad was a government scientist, so I spent a lot of time in Fort Detrick, which is quite interesting, which was both where you know they had the X-Files, um, NIH is around there, and also where they invented Agent Orange. So it was quite an interesting thing, you know, growing up not on an army base, but near an army base. Yeah. Um, and then moving on to Bethesda, and then ultimately New York. And then I began my world adventure, I think when I was 26, when I moved to London. So having been born in another country and being, you know, a once immigrant, um, I figured, you know, why not travel the world? And I figured that London would be the safest place to start because they kind of speak our language. And I stayed there for about 20 years. And during that time, I also did uh, two years in Amsterdam, two years in Glasgow, and then also lived and worked in a bunch of other places. So I think I came here 2019. So now, yeah, it's almost going on four years. Wow. How many people have you met that uh, travel as much as you have and, and lived there? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that I know people who travel a lot more than me because of just work or more affluent or whatever, but it's different when you're living at a place versus being on holiday. Mm -hmm. So for example, a lot of people have a different opinion of Dubai coming here just on holiday versus Mm -hmm. actually having to love, you know, live here and then put your kids through school and then deal with the bureaucracy and visas and all that sort of stuff. So I have probably lived abroad longer than most people I know because now I'm now 49, so that's 23 years. So it's pretty much half my life and definitely most of my adult life. Um, But I haven't really been many places. So I haven't lived in South America, for example, or Asia or Africa, you know, um, and most parts in Europe. I mean, I made the mistake when I was in London 
to not really, you know, give travel a chance. So I haven't really been to a lot of really exotic places within Europe even. Um, but it's weird because it does change you as an American having to live abroad because you're always a minority. Yeah. Right. And the thing that I really like about this country is it's the only place where we're lived where the expats or the foreigners, as we would say in America, we're the majority. I think it's something like we're 95% of the population here. It's I ridiculous. That's right. And then of the expats, I think it's something like 80, I don't know if it's 80% or 60% of them are all from Pakistan. So we've Yeah, I mean, it's not Pakistan, but definitely you have, number one is South Asia, yeah. right? So you've got India, Bangladesh, you know, Pakistan, like that. Number two is uh, Filipinos, mm-hmm. okay? They're, you know, and, and it's actually done by almost not a caste system, but by, you know, uh, sectors, okay? So the Filipinos are more about hospitality and they'll work in the restaurants and the hotels and things like that, while yeah. the South Asians are the ones that built this country. They do all the construction. In terms of, uh, you know, Western European cultures, I think number one is the UK, right? Which is why all the radio stations here are British. Yes. Which is ridiculous, okay? Because the music is just so awful. I've noticed that. I've noticed that all of the, or the majority of the radio cast, the radio hosts have accents. And I think there's one radio host on the radio station we most frequently listen to that's American. And it's like, oh, there's like a really? familiar But, but, but it's an American on a British station, right? Yes, there's probably. no American stations. No, here. no, 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 no. They are definitely there's there's one amongst many that have accents that don't have an accent. So if oh. you're there at a particular time of the day, you're like, oh, okay, it's a familiar sounding voice. Because there aren't that many over here. There aren't that many people that sound like us, that's for sure. They also are like a particular accent. They're they don't like I, I work with a lot of people from uh, England and some of the Manchester, some of them a few other places. Actually, the last podcast guy was from Manchester. And and they sound hardworking, but when I hear them on the radio, they sound different. Like, they, they sound like the people you would see, not necessarily in the movies. Like, uh, I think Virgin did a, a, a big impact on this, where, like, Virgin, specifically with their voice actors, whether it's for their commercials, at least from what I saw in Canada, they sound like the Virgin... Uh, commercials that we have in Canada, uh, all the radio hosts and even a lot of the, the ads here that would use like a, like a, like an, like an accent from somewhere, somewhere in England, um, which I found, well, I just found that a little, little bit interesting. But I think it's uh, received pronunciation, RP. It's, it's the Queen's English, right? So they're, they're trained in this. This is the whole, the whole BBC English. This is when they go to journalism school or broadcasting school, whatever they call it in the UK. Um, you know, they're trained to talk this way. Now, you have to be... <laughs> those aren't sound effects. That's their lovely dog. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're taught. I mean, you have to be very um, popular to, you know, be a radio host with a natural accent, okay? So to sound like you're from Manchester or from Liverpool or wherever it is. And that's the thing I really enjoyed in the UK is such a small country, but the variety of accents. Like, America is a big country, and we have a lot of accents, but yes. nowhere near as many as the UK. You can just drive an hour away, and you have a whole different dialect, different slang in the UK and things like that, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think in uh, Canada, we've got, we got BC, then we've got the Prairies, and then we got Ontario, which is just American anyways, but we got the, the Newfoundlanders, the Newfies, who, uh, I mean, probably the general population of the world wouldn't be able to understand them. I mean, even I have a hard time. One of my best friends, his family is from there. 
I, I can understand him um, and most of his family, but sometimes they they just, you know, they're, they're their own little world and we love them. Uh, and then we got the French. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, I'll let individuals decide. Um, but uh, even they speak their own type of French compared to, uh, to France. It's, it's like um, Mexicans and Spaniards. So I had a Mexican friend of mine uh, visit me in London a while ago when I was living there, and I introduced him to my Spanish friend, and they pretended not to understand each other, okay? Because they speak the same language. It's not like Portuguese. It's just that, like, the intonation, you know, like, the, their slang is totally different, and they just really wouldn't do it. I'm sure it's the same thing with the Quebecois and, you know, the Parisians. Like, they pretend... To not know yes. each other. But I find Canada fascinating, especially filmmaking. I mean, David Cronenberg, I mean, come on, honestly. He's one of your heroes, national heroes, right? Uh, that's what they'd say. The, the funny thing is, uh, you know you've made it in Canadian filmmaking, music, or any type of artistry because uh, you've moved to the United States. <laughs> so yeah. all, ca- all Canadians that end up making it big, they end up leaving Canada. No, I um, think you, you also make it big <laughs> when the Americans don't know that you're Canadian. Right? Oh, yeah. So like Shania Twain, you know, Celine Dion, yeah, all these yeah, things. Yeah. Like they think that they're these Americans. And I had the same thing with my friends, you know, growing up in Long Island. Um, a lot of them were like, yeah, man, Led Zeppelin, like totally American band. I'm like, nope, British. Like Black yeah, Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. like, nope, British. I'm like, at least they knew the Beatles and the Stones, but all the other favorite bands. I'm yeah. like, honestly, these guys are from the UK, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so America just tends to suck you in. They don't care where you're from. But then when you do a little bit of research and you go to Wikipedia or, you know, Back in the days, find out on TV, you realize they're Canadians. How about Nickelback? Is Nickelback Canadian by, did the Americans think you know, Nickelback honestly, is Canadian? You know, honestly, the fact that you just admitted that they're Canadians just lowers my opinion of Canadians. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, like, why would, it's like, it's like, you know, being like, oh, you're from Iraq? Yeah, Saddam, you heard of him? It's the same thing. Saddam okay, and okay. Nickelback are oh equal. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm teasing, obviously. They are <laughs> very successful and they're very important for the development of pop music. You know, if it wasn't for Nickelback, you wouldn't have other bands. You know, they're influential. You don't need to like their music, but they made a big splash and they had, you know, a lot of success. What can I say? And how about Justin Bieber? Is Justin Bieber very Canadian or uh, is know, you're, he? You're asking, you know, things, at least Nickelback <laughs> was my generation. You're asking, you know, 49-year-old about Justin Bieber. I mean, look, you know, you know, he's not Justin Timberlake is all I can say. That is very true. I, I rate the other Justin, the Timberlakes, over the Beavers, you know. Fair enough. Yeah, But he survived. I mean, you know, the thing is with these kinds of young stars, like, they could just go the wrong way, right? So, you know, you could look at the Olsons, right? Oh, yes. You've got the Olsen twins, which went totally insane. And then you've got, what's her name? He's doing really good. And then uh, a, a real, uh, like, I think it's the Olsen family. No, no, the Rankin family. Okay, I totally messed this up. Who are the Rankins? The Rankin family is this like obscure Canadian uh, country band, but it's, ju- it's just a family. So it's the Rankin family. Yeah. And uh, most people from the prairies, uh, if you don't know who they are, you've probably heard their music. Um, but I totally messed that up with the Olsen family. I feel like the Olsen family. Oh, no, no. Just, I'm probably thinking the Olsen twins. That's about it. Yeah. Because oh, well, uh, misplaced uh, that. Full house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then Elizabeth Olsen, right? She's the older sister or cousin or something. She was Scarlet Witch. I mean, she's yeah. doing all these movies. She's amazing, right? Like they went, they couldn't deal with fame. And so the thing about Justin Bieber is that he had his problems, you know, during his youth, but he still survived it, right? You know, so the, it's tough to grow up like that. But yeah. you look at Britney Spears, same thing. She went totally insane. But Justin Timberlake, you know, grew up in that same kind of environment. I think him and Britney Spears are both on the Mickey Mouse Club or something oh, ridiculous. Oh, yes, yes. And he's a very successful, stable sort of star, you know. You know, not that he has anything to do with Canada, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, impressed by people like Bieber who, you know, turn it all around and now, you know, they're real artists. 
who don't necessarily sink, right? When so many of them sink and just like have it's just I mean it's fa- famous tough exactly it's famous tough on everyone I would imagine you know yeah, I'm not famous yeah. at all, but uh, you know for a lot of people if you start as a young star you're screwed. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So uh, you got a new job in Dubai? Um, yeah, yeah. So I am. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, so I'm working for a small agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm head of product design, um, and uh, it's a good team. So a lot of young people, which is I really enjoy working with, like you know Gen Z or whatever the next one is. Are they going to go back to A? No, no, I think it's Gen Z. They probably won't go back to A. No, what, what, I mean it's coming up. What, what's, what's A one? A one. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, they'll, just, they'll just start. They'll start again and they'll shadow. No, but we never got to A. We started at X, right? So like, oh yeah, you know, right. So they will probably call it A or I don't know. Maybe AI generation AI. Generation. Hey, Ooh, I just, there we go. I coined it here. Okay, yeah, it's a generation yeah, AI. Yeah. Um, Wiki yeah. page will reference this it's podcast. It's interesting because you know working with Gen Z people, they have a different ethos to work. I find than you know people of my generation where, you know, the boomers, they ruined the world, right? So because they had it so easy, you know, because their parents went to war and they're like, we're going to give you everything and housing prices were low in America. I'm just comparing it to American stuff. So Gen X, you know, we just kind of just missed our chance, okay? But we still were like, you've got to put in your dues. Like it wasn't something that just we adopted their way of working, didn't try to change the world. Some people did, but mostly we just gave up. Okay. Then Gen Y came out and they're like, well, we're going to kind of do the same and kind of care a little bit. But Gen Z really cares. So for them, I find, you know, they demand more, not so much about money, but about, you know, things like ethics and, you know, wanting to know why they're working. So it's not so much about saying, okay, well, working for this client because they pay us a lot, just suck it up and do it. Some of them do, but I find to generalize, and you never should generalize, but I will, I find that as a generation, they want more, which gives me hope, you know, that yeah. actually they actually will care. And not that they will fix the planet, but maybe their kids will. Well, they're, they're probably more Generation Y than Generation Y, um, just from the folks that I've Aha, uh-huh, wait, nice pun. Ah, I like that. Okay, hey. There we go. That's a little Do bad. the air horn. Oh, can I do it? Yeah, come on. How do I do it? How do... Uh, oh, no, I got to... Yes, Generation YY. There, there it is. Work. Generation Perfect. YY. But um, yeah, there's a there, there's definitely a strive for why. Can we do this better? Um, but I I find a lot of the why is associated with efficiency. Obviously, there's doing the right thing, um, which I think everyone's trying to figure out in in their own way in their own lives. But but Generation Y, you know, why are we putting so much? Like, are we really reaping the reward of? Uh, um, the amount of time that we're investing in this, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the old mantra of showing up before your boss does or after your boss does, or, or really, um, it's not it's not because if you a- I feel like if you ask them to go above and beyond, they'll do it. But but they just they just you know a little bit of information and and you know when I when I think of leadership, I think about like the the ten principles of leadership, and one of them is to um, actually I got them written right here. Let me just pull that this one up in particular. Um, it is, uh, two of them that apply to this is, uh, clarify objectives and intent and then treat subordinates fairly, uh, respond to their concerns, represent their interests. And, and a lot of that is just explaining not just what, but, but the why and, and the benefit I think you get of explaining the why is that maybe they have an idea 
of how we can do things differently, that, that's a little bit better. Or even just um, s- sometimes the best thing you can do um, in a leadership position is uh, don't change any of their plan and just let them run with it. Realize that it's not taking any of your time input. And then they get a such a, like when people are asking why, they get such a kick out of ownership of, of the problem that they're trying to solve. Like it becomes theirs. And, you know, you, you want to mentor them in a way where it's their idea, it's their plan to execute. Um, you might be able to show a couple things, but you don't, you don't ever want to, you, you know, when, when, it's, when it's successful or if it fails, you know, as long as they feel like they, if it fails, like they learn from something and they don't get to blame someone else for its failure. And if they're successful, they really get to feel like they did something. I think that's, a, that's what the Generation Z types, if they're anything like me, get a real big kick out of. Is, uh, is ownership of whatever it is that they're working on. And I think um, they also enter the workforce during a very different time. We've had for uh, you know, the last little while and will continue in the future, like the baby boomers are retiring. And you know, they had to put their time in to move up. And now we're seeing a bit of, uh, instead of it being like, there's so many people behind you that they're pushing people up the ranks, there's so little people in front of you that we're vacuuming people up the ranks. So we're going to be promoting people who maybe don't necessarily have the time, but whether it's the right attitude or the right experience, they're going to be put into these positions. And, and being someone who is sometimes in those positions or, or seeing other people who are in those positions, if, um, if you have someone of the old guard who's entirely set on uh, time in, um, you're going to get... The, these young people are going to have a hard time or they're going to have a hard time dealing with these young people because they're not going to think they're capable or the young people are going to feel like uh, I'm not just being handed the task and allowed to run with it. I think it, it's important uh, what you said earlier about um, giving them ownership. But the most important thing that they need to understand is that they're not unique and special snowflakes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because there are so many young people right now and if you look at certain countries around the world, okay, we're, and the UAE is a great example, mm-hmm. where the young people vastly outnumber the old people. There's mm-hmm. massive competition for jobs at their level. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that we would promote them faster. I think that by giving on what you're saying, which is by letting them develop their own strategy, that's the fastest way to weed them out. Right? Mm-hmm. Because if you handhold them, then you don't really know how they deal with failure or difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. So actually, I was reading a uh, science fiction book last week, um, and uh, it actually gave me an idea for a new management style, Yeah, which is really what I enjoy, is basically taking inspiration for work from places that are not work, right? Yeah. So I'm an artist as well, so I always tell people when you're doing art, watch film, read books, you know, go talk to people, you know, don't just go to museums and look at art because you can be influenced by a whole bunch of stuff. And, and, you know, when I'm doing digital design and creating products, you know, I say, you know, watch films, you know, go talk to doctors, talk to lawyers, talk to people in construction and things like that. You can get ideas from anywhere, you know, don't just go on the web and go through TikTok. So, this was a science fiction book and, uh, you know, this really great scene where it started with, you know, and it was military sci-fi. So this, these group of senior officers in the future with laser guns and spaceships and things like that, uh, you know, they 
asked you know one of the young people to speak up and basically that they had a junior strategy group okay mm -hmm. so all the older people in the room they already had discussed what they're going to do okay so they were ready to lead okay but they had asked the junior team separately for a month previously to solve the problem their way and then present it right to give yeah. them the space and the time without ordering them just telling them what's the problem and then to hear what their strategy was right yeah. and it didn't change much of what the senior people did but it poked holes in a lot of the senior people's thinking and because they were experienced they were able to pivot really quickly but without that valuable input from the young people they wouldn't have found what was faulty in their thinking. And obviously, this is a book. It's fiction, right? Yeah, yeah. But I can see exactly how this would work at work, which is basically normally, you know, I'm leading. You know, I'm the how guy. So it's all about process. This is what we should do because I've got 25 years experience doing this. So I know how to do all these things. And even if I can't solve this problem, I can look at all the arrows in my quiver, consider previous projects, do a million calculations a second, and just adapt quickly to the situation and tell you exactly how to do it. Now, is that efficient? Yes. Will it consider all the factors? No. So what I can learn from this book is to, before I make a decision, before we start the project, to give the team a week, you know, not necessarily a month like in the book, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you've got to be agile, yeah. to just sit down together, you know, all the different departments, you know, so all the junior people across design and programming and business analysis and project management and copywriting and everything else, to try to solve the problem, whatever, how we're going to progress, okay? Elect a spokesperson, you know, they're all in the room, and then that person presents, you know, and then, you know, all taking basically our jobs, doing the jobs of the senior team, and saying this is how we would tackle it. And I think that would be really fruitful, and it's something I'm going to try going forward. Well, uh, two things on that. First one, uh, I guess I'll caveat everything with what I said before, um, because uh, sometimes you get a bit of a single-track mind, as in I get a single-track mind. Um, I, yeah, here is probably different. I was thinking more so like railroads in North America, which are suffering a completely different hiring scheme right now. And then with what you said, um, some... Uh, I don't know if you'd call it advice, but uh, I've, I've got a bit of a leadership book that my dad here actually got me. And uh, one of the things they talked about was that that's, it, uh, it's an offshoot of what you said. It was when you host a meeting, um, if you're the leader in the meeting, and I mean, figure out your leadership style, first and foremost, for anyone who actually is looking for leadership uh, information or experience. You know, listen to what other people have to say, but figure out your style. But something that they mentioned is, Instead of being the first person to go in a meeting, if you're the last person to go, you may benefit from hearing everyone's ideas and then taking your, you know, you, you mentioned a quiver, you know, applying your strategy uh, system based on that. Slash also, you're going to have your own ideas before you show up to a meeting anyways. But instead of proposing something and everyone picking through, you'll, everyone will feel like they come up with ideas that they contribute. Um, and, and they really are contributing and coming up with ideas. And then you get to see how your idea fits with it. Your idea is probably the right one, especially if you're the most experienced in the, in the room. But then you can take and pull from different groups. And everyone gets to feel like they've been heard before the decision's been I made. I think it's important to have them heard. But I think the dynamic in a meeting, in my experience, is a lot different than if you do pre-planning. Mm -hmm. okay? Because people you know, don't bother doing research, in my experience, in my field. For a meeting, right? So they're off the cuff, right? 
So yeah, that's true as well. <laughs> what I mean is that basically, like the loud people speak first, and then they're the ones who are bold. And, and, yeah. and these are all, and a lot of those gut feelings are are, are right if you're experienced. Okay, um, the young people would just fire off ideas, you know, especially if they're boisterous or extroverts, right? But yes. if you give them proper time before the meeting and you schedule them a week, you know, then and you get their own leadership where the young people. Lord of the Flies, self-evolve their own <laughs> structure and have a spokesperson, that means that the ideas that come into that meeting include the quiet people, mm-hmm. okay? Because, you know, everyone now is an influencer and a promoter and things like that, yeah. but you need to take a think honestly, and I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but I think it's an important discussion, no, go for is it. to think about people who are not only introverts, but also neurodivergent, you know, people mm-hmm. who are might have ADHD or anxiety and things like that. So the idea is that, and I found this experience myself with, you know, developers, and I'm not going to paint all, you know, programmers, you know, in this light, right? But often in, you know, my 25-year career, you know, the fact that I would invite programmers, design meetings, they had no idea. Like, why are you listening to me? You know, like my job is just to execute you know what you say. Now, obviously, I'm being blase about that, right? But I said, look, you know, I don't want to design something you guys can't build. Or I don't want to design something that will take twice as long or, you know, just cause failure or cause risk. So I'm including you here because we rely on you. None of my fancy designs or sketches or blueprints are going to matter if you can't construct it, right? Mm -hmm. So here, you can not only point out flaws in my thinking and the team's plan, but also create your own agency. And if you have a great design idea, because you know actually how things are built, I'm giving you the opportunity. So my metaphor here is that people who often aren't comfortable, okay, especially in a forum with senior people, and I find that less among Americans and less among Londoners than a lot of other cultures who are present in the UAE, and I'm not gonna name names, okay, they're just not comfortable talking or dealing with, with seniority, okay, mm-hmm. because of saving face and things like that. But yeah. if they have people their own age who they're friends with in the office, who they spend lunch time with in the office, who you can set time away from them to get their ideas, then that can filter up into a productive planning meeting. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, if there's anyone listening from the military, they're going to love this. I'm just going to tack on to what you just said right there. But... Um, Within a machine shop setting, like what I really latch on to is your discussion about the the implementer, the person who's going to build this. And so I, I, I did a little machining for like a summer or two. Uh, no, just one summer before I went off to university. And even thereafter, uh, you know, engineers, designer types, uh, people, it's not necessarily authority, but they, they're going to come up with the drawings and stuff but they're not necessarily the experts on how it's going to be built. And I came back a summer later to that same machine shop that I was going to become a machinist at, and I ended up getting a call and went to university, but I came back a a year later. And the same people that were mentoring me as a machinist were able to mentor me as an engineer because I would sometimes I would show them a drawing and ask them questions about it, and they'd be like, yeah, this doesn't make sense, or the tolerance here doesn't make sense, or... Why would you do that with this phase? How is this being built together? And then another time, uh, other times they would just pull me and they'd show me what they're working on. Yeah. They'd show me what they're working on and they would, um, 
bring me over and they'd ask me questions about this design that they got from an external engineer and they'd say, hey, like, why would, uh, I'm just using tolerances as like the go-to go answer, but, uh, or question, but why is this tolerance of uh, the surface of the piece, uh, this, why is this rough, all these questions and, you know, really looking at it, especially uh, how they would uh, end up machining the part, it, you know, though it was there on paper, it didn't necessarily make sense as uh, why it was, uh, uh, sorry, the specifications didn't make sense for the use case, but they also didn't make sense for the, uh, the construction case. And I ran into this a little while later where I was watching uh, a little bit of a video of some guy who I presume is also an engineer at a machine shop. And he brought up uh, a point too about how like a part of the design team should be like a, a senior technical uh, individual who is able to provide um, information on like how these parts are constructed or in your case, right? Like how, how this thing would be programmed and, and they can really provide a lot of fasting information. And then, I mean, to go one step further within like a, a more of a, a military case, like the military works with uh, command teams. So you might have a, an officer type, but you also have a senior technical advisor not necessarily advisor, he's a leader, but a senior technical leader who's a non-commissioned member, who's the guy who's done everything. Uh, in lots of different places, he's taught everyone how to, to do these very technical pieces, but he's able to, to grab you know the, the officer, kind of shake his shoulder a little bit and say, hey, um, uh, what you're doing doesn't make a lot of sense, or, or hey, maybe you should try this and just kind of snap you out of the ideas. Because, you know, uh, there's like... There's two streams to go into, and if you're the guy who's going to design, either you can do the job for a while and then end up becoming the designer, or nowadays you just go to school, pay some money, and then you're just thrust into a position where you're supposed to design stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you you still need both because the amount of time it would take for the guy to be on the shop floor to end up becoming the head of the engineering par department of Boeing, um, we're talking about someone who would be working well into their, I mean, probably well into their 60s. Um, which would have a lot of benefit, but not everyone wants to work well into their 60s if they've been working a, a good job like that. So just a couple of my thoughts on all that. Um, so, Victoria, what do you do and what do you think about all this? Um, currently, I am studying to take my national competency exam um, in Canada for occupational therapy. Okay. So, so I, you're an academic? Yes. As for right now, I don't currently have a job. Um, they've actually made it more difficult for healthcare practitioners to get jobs here because they say you need two years of experience before you can get signed off by the government, basically, to get employed in any capacity in a healthcare role here. It's like I graduated in December. When, when am I supposed to have done this experience back home? So, uh, yeah, right now I am a, a dog mom and uh, an academic. So when so. you do your academia, <laughs> is it um, solo or do you do group work as well? Oh, it was solo and group work while I was in school. Yeah. Um, I technically like graduated my program yeah. in December, um, which was interesting. You know, so what do you think about COVID, but what we're talking about, the junior and senior dichotomy in the military and in digital design? Yes. How does that apply to academia? Like, how does that work? Oh, my goodness. I feel like we had quite a few instances, particularly around COVID, where the lived experiences of the students going through... Um, particularly like online schooling, uh, was very different than I think the professors 
you know, teaching us were, were experiencing. So they were thinking, you know, we're investing all of this time, we're investing all of this energy, we're trying to make these courses as good as possible. And then us students are feeling like you're investing so much time and so much energy and you're burning us all out because we're, we're doing all of this from our home now. So not only do we not have the division between, you know, home and, home and school, but, you know, you're compensating by providing all of these extra readings and all of these pre-recorded lectures. And now this thing that's supposed to be confined to, you know, eight hours of your day has ballooned into something way more. So I think maybe, is it, Maybe a junior, could it be called a junior leadership team if the students had gotten together and kind of said, yeah, hey, here's absolutely. what we have. Um, yes, that's what we did. Did we find it successful? No, because our the things that we were putting forwards weren't being um, actioned upon yeah. um, year after year. So the class ahead of us said, hey, can we like look at kind of how much work collectively you're asking us to do um, and just like be mindful that, you know, burnout is real and you're asking us to do way more than you would if this was happening in person and they said yeah 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 and then the next year the next class said the same thing and then the next year the next class because there was three of our classes yeah. and it, there wasn't any improvement so I see such value in it in having people speak up because I think you need to have that so that we don't become disheartened and so that we're not going out and saying you know your program is trash um and doesn't listen to people's ideas, but it needs to be listened to, like, and it needs to be followed through on. And if it's not, tell us why. Yeah. If it's because we need a certain amount of hours of, you know, time, um, what do they call it when it's not direct face-to-face, -face? like indirect time. If there's yeah. a certain amount of indirect time that you need in your program, that's fine, but tell us that and say, I'm sorry, like, I know this seems like a lot, but this is the requirement of having a nationally accredited program or whatever. That's great, but they, they really weren't doing that. So. Um, I think this idea is fabulous, but it really needs to have buy-in from both sides. Yeah, I think the challenge, because um, I didn't spend time in, in academia. I mean, I dropped out of art school in 94-ish to go into the web, right? So it's kind of like AI now, which is like a whole another topic. Like I, what I find exciting about this area is that... Um, the excitement people are feeling for AI is how I felt when the web first came out. Yes, you know? yeah. But uh, I think the difference between the environment you're talking about is that uh, it's a commercial environment. Mm, okay? yes. So you're paying. Yes. They're providing a service. Yes. Okay? Uh, so Jade and I are talking about we're, we're supposedly one team. You know, we're all getting paid to do this job. I think what's interesting about what you said about working remotely or staying remotely is that the teachers felt the need to compensate. I think so. For the fact that they didn't know how to teach online. Okay. So they weren't ready for it either. Nobody was really ready for it. Yes. Okay. I mean, I was lucky being in digital, you know, working a lot remotely. But when COVID hit, watching a lot of my colleagues, you know, um, just suffer, you know, even, you know, even in digital, especially the ones who were younger, because you need those couple of years as a young person face to face yes. to build those relationships, get your confidence in the office, right? To be thrown into here's your first job, it's fully remote is unfair. So us older people were like, this is awesome. I don't have to commute. Yeah. You know, that means I, instead of commuting, I can work harder and I can get more done. I'm more productive. For the junior people, it was more like, I have no idea what I'm doing. How am I doing? I need an extra tuition and things like that. So your professors were compensating without being trained in it. So I hope now that when, I hope globally, that when pedagogy is taught, yeah. 
for how to teach that the first thing they should be teaching is how to teach remote. Yes. Yeah. And it's so valuable. Like I loved, like personally, I loved learning remotely, especially like I was doing my master's, right? So you do have certain people that are attracted to a master's that are your, you know, typical go-getters, A plus people that are really serious and really intense. And by doing it remotely, you could remove yourself from that. And you could create some of that work-life balance in that you didn't feel that stress and anxiety coming off of other people. Um, so I think it's such a valuable tool. And like you said about the commuting, like it's so great to not have to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, it just, it's, it needs to be improved upon. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful, like you said, that that's going to be continued upon. I mean, my, my biggest challenge, uh, during COVID remotely, uh, was workshops, right? Because as a designer and artist, you know, I'm the post-it guy, right? Put me in a room, you know, like get me, get me with 12 people, eight people. I don't care how senior they are. You know, I can take charge, phones off, boom, boom, boom. Okay. The CEO can have his phone. Nobody else can. And then even the quiet people, I can get them to speak up. And then, but then the workshop, everyone's like, this is amazing because that's how I was trained. Yeah. Is just basically, you know, us having some kind of mind meld, hive mind physically. Okay. Yeah. And I have done remote workshops before, but then having to do workshops remotely all the time and expecting results, it's really hard, okay? Because, you know, the body language, you know, just the body language, but just like when you're in a room full of people, like the three of us here, we're in a room, right? We're looking at each other. We're having a great conversation. Absolutely, this conversation would be worse if we were doing it through Zoom. Yes. Okay? Yes. A... I'm like jazz hands. My hands are going everywhere, right? <laughs> but also just being able to look at each other's eyes, you know, and it's, you lose that online, okay? And also there's things that you don't realize, you know, being, you know, a uh, wannabe filmmaker, I'm very critical about online meetings because of bad microphones, oh. bad lighting, bad camera, lack of makeup, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, the wrong clothes, you know, all kinds of weird stuff, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not critical of them, what I'm critical is the fact that how that makes the person come across. And I feel bad for them that people are very judgmental. Mm-hmm. So what started happening is that people started turning their cameras off, which became more acceptable, which is good, which is why podcasts are awesome versus video podcasts. Because a podcast, you don't have to worry about that. Like here we are just chatting. We could be all in our underwear. No one would know, right? But if you are showing visually and you have 12 faces staring at you blankly and you can barely hear them and they all look tired because of bad lighting, you know, you're judging them, they're judging you and things like that. So it really is a deterrent to good workshops if you have to overcome a lot of that. Mm. And people will prejudice other people through video calls whether they want to or not. It's often subconscious. And yeah. so if you, which means that you can game it, right? Because if you have a good mic and a good camera and you know a little bit about presenting and talking and varying your voice and things like that and being close to the mic, which Victoria, you should be a bit closer when you speak. Okay. Um, <laughs> then you come across as more credible, which is a shame, okay? Because some people don't have that, right? Well, even think about that with uh, um, interviews. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to brag, but I might have been the, uh, the first COVID interview at my company in, uh, in Canada. Pardon? Air horn. Blow the air horn. <laughs> yeah. That was probably way too loud. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah. yeah. But um, we were, uh, so I, I, I came home from tour 
in Kuwait. Um, I was probably drinking a little too much. Um, but then I ended up getting uh, an interview with Canadian Pacific Rail. And we had it scheduled. And just as we had it scheduled the week before uh, COVID hit. So then all of a sudden, you, uh, you, you had to do your interviews online. So, uh, you know, I'm figuring out what to do here. And the, so when it, I find a lot of times when people discuss, uh, well, most topics, they kind of, there's like a, there's a certain group who gets left behind. So if I didn't have access to the local church in my home, well, close to my hometown, my internet would not have been good enough to do the interview. And I mean, I had a I had a nice laptop, so the camera was okay and the audio quality was okay. But I, I what I'm I mean, it's not this isn't a what was me story. You're talking about how people are presumed presumed in interviews, even thinking about how people are are sorry uh, meetings, even thinking about people in interviews. And if you have a good mic, um, and, and you know you sound good and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it uh, it, it will influence the people conducting the uh, the interview. Uh, and, you know, whether, you know, just like how, you know, you put on a suit and tie and you do all sorts of stuff. I mean, the nice thing about these online interviews is you may or may not be wearing pants. Um, I was in a church, so I definitely didn't wear pants. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I think about. And no, actually, it's, it's ridiculous because I was, um, I was interviewing for a role recently. Yeah. Um, and this is a guy who gave me a call back yeah. two years after I first interviewed with him. Okay. Holy smokes. For a different role. Yeah, yeah, Um, That role, uh, they pulled it, which just happens a lot, right? Like you're rooting for something and they're like, we're not hiring. There's, there's a whole other discussion for why companies do that. Yeah. It's partially sometimes to steal ideas. It's partially because they already know someone internally they're going to hire, but they have mm-hmm. to pretend. There's yeah, a whole different yeah. thing, but it didn't happen right. So then he called me up a little while ago and he's like, you know, Mike, you remember me? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I remember you. You're that guy with that awesome video setup. Yeah. I'm like, that's all you remember? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. literally, like, I mean, it's good to make a good impression. But he didn't yeah. say, oh, I remember your accomplishments. He's like, you just had a really good video set up. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. I, okay, I guess thank you. Yeah. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Um, but I did want, oh, Victoria's got something. Oh, yeah. Because I was even thinking about doing online school, right? And that's m- the only time I've interacted with my classmates. And so you see their backgrounds and you see what they bring to class every day. And yeah. I know one of the girls in my class, she had a bird. And so she would have this bird with her sometimes in class. And you. Sh- Sorry, in a cage or like free, no, free like roaming? On her shoulder. What kind of bird was it? Because I I'm imagining. It was like now. a parrot, not a parrot. Like a cockatoo or something. Maybe. It was like small and bright small. blue. It wasn't like, like a huge, like. No, no, no. Pirate, no, parrot. No, okay. definitely not. Um, but yes, so even thinking like the, that's the person that you're bringing there. And then you meet them in person, like in a classroom setting. It's like. Where's the bird? Yeah, right? Like it's, it seems disjointed and it seems like now it's become a part of your personality because it's been with you during these classes and now it's not there. And yeah, yeah. So having like, as you were speaking about video setup and as you're speaking about like what you bring to a setting that isn't necessarily the most important part, right? Like it's obviously not your ideas and whatnot, but it's it's everything else around you. Um, that's, yeah, that's just what that got me thinking about. But Jaden, I think. Yeah, note for everyone who's listening to this, if you ever want to go to podcasting, uh, trying to do a three-person podcast with two mics is terrible. Because every time I have an idea, I want to reach for the mic, but then I'm going to be cutting someone else off, and that's just rude. So, uh, you know, 
pay um, pay the money. Hand gestures. Hand gestures. Ooh, that'd be better. Instead yeah. of reaching, I could just go. I could pretend to reach. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that if you want to speak, just put oh, your put up. your finger up. That's a good idea. Because they don't know. Yeah. What's going on here? Like, yeah. A, we're not wearing clothes, and yeah, B, we've yeah. got hand gestures now. Yeah, and there may or may not be a dog ruffling around the back. Yeah, I mean, you, you say it's a dog, but it could be know. a cockatoo. It could be <laughs> a gimp. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something was brought up earlier that got me thinking about. Um, I mean, there doesn't have to be a lot of talk about this, but like, it was it was COVID, and just like, I was thinking particularly with like young. I mean, obviously everything's very centric to you know what I've been through and what I've done because uh, I only know about me aside from what others tell me, but uh, young engineers and professionals, like during COVID, if you graduated in 2020, 2021, if you didn't get hired back when, you know, the economy was a bit suppressed and there were a lot of projects, um, you were now starting to compete with people who were fresh out of school. This is very much an academic centric or, or people who are yep. doing that type of centric. But even if you, I mean, if you were a welder or some type, typically you had employment during the year um, and hopefully you're doing all. So there's some people who would have been, you know, let go because of projects because of COVID. But there's also like all of a sudden there's an influx of educated people going for jobs that require a certain level of education. And we also saw, and I'm just speaking in Canada, we also saw a high level of people with degrees um and some of them were like high level engineers applying for you know entry level engineering jobs because they're just looking for work and like you know i get that but i was i we were interviewing for um laborers and if you're a laborer there's nothing wrong with being a laborer a great union job like you know uh some people like socialism some people don't but um uh i had a guy who was more qualified to be me in every way he was some like crazy engineer from Eastern Europe, um, had so much experience and he was applying for like a laborer job and I'm sitting there and I, you know, I, I don't even know what to think about it. Um, I had one guy argue with me a little bit about, uh, no, 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 I could definitely do the job. And you know, it's like, I mean, I'm really looking for someone who's very malleable, you know, with an yeah. entry level laborer job. Um, and I, I don't know if he liked what I had to say about that, but um, that was uh, something. And I mean, even other people who just would have lost their job and looking for new jobs, all of a sudden there's just an influx of uh, like what I never understood about unemployment was if it's like if it's spread out, all of a sudden you got people from all walks of life trying to compete for the same jobs, and it really it can sometimes leave. I think it can sometimes leave people behind, and it, it's it's a lot different than you think. Like it's not just people who are looking for jobs; it's it's people who are because like if I'm hiring. Would I rather have the guy who's fresh out of the school or have the guy who was uh, out of school a year ago if they have all the same experience? I mean, I mean, it's, wild. it's difficult because you, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. Logically, you want the fresher person, the younger person, because they're more malleable, okay? Yeah. But having someone who's two years older, mm-hmm. who's been desperate, who's got a little bit more life learning will take the lesser pay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also appreciates the job more. Ah, that's you know what I'm yeah, saying yeah, is yeah. that now, now I don't hire that way in general, yeah, yeah. but this I isn't a common I, situation. It's either. just, it, it's COVID created lost generation. Okay. Yeah. Because I think so. What you're saying, the specific situation you're talking about is that people graduated during COVID. No one would hire them. Okay. Now they're two years older 
and they're competing not only against people two years younger, but also people in their 40s and 50s who are desperate for work. Yeah. But, com- but if we just compare the fresh graduates versus the fresh, f- less fresh graduates who didn't have work, so they have the same level of work experience, which is zero, which one do you hire? Um, it depends on the person, really. I yeah. mean, this is an interesting debate because, you know, being a university dropout, okay, mm-hmm. it's never affected me ever, okay, before I came to the UAE. Because of that sweet, sweet video setup. Um, this is before the video <laughs> setup. Before the video setup is that, you know, New York, I was lucky because I got into the web Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time everybody else did, which is before everybody else in everywhere else, mm-hmm. okay? So I just basically created a career. I'm going to do this thing. I was way ahead of the curve, you know, uh, and that was great. And then, uh, you know, worked corporate New York, no degree, okay? And having come from art school, even if I had the degree, it wouldn't have meant anything, <laughs> right? Um, I did three years in it, but, you know, didn't graduate. And then London's the same way. London picked up. It's like, you know, you have the portfolio, you have the skills, do it. Boom, 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 boom. Nobody in London or in Europe ever asked me for a degree, okay? Then I moved to the UAE, okay? And my first job, lovely company, you know, they recruited me to come over here, okay? And then COVID hit, I had to look for another job. And it took me a year to find my second job, okay? And honestly, you don't want to be unemployed in the UAE. Let me tell you that. Um... And mostly it was because HR, uh, who most people have a hate, 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 love relationship with, um, mm. they don't want to talk to you unless you have a bachelor's in your field. Mm. And I'm like, bachelor's in my field or 25 years experience. Oh, no. What do you think? They're like, well, you, you're not on this thing. And I said, it's, I know it's not a visa problem because other companies have been able to give me visas based on not having a degree. You just put them in a different category, right? Yeah. But they're like, we're not going to look at it. You know, I was even up for a teaching position at a uh, you know, really good design school in Dubai. You know, oh, wow. not, and not having a PhD in teaching, it was basically being like a visiting lecturer. Okay. okay. Um, teaching you know, exactly what I do, which is how to design software, right? So going back to your uh, military metaphor, uh, Jaden, uh, uh, being that senior specialist mm-hmm. who's been in the trenches and done it all before, I figured you know it was valuable for me. Of course, because I like mentoring you know kids, um, young people at work. Want to do an academic setting? Of course, you know, especially after I've been for so long. Yeah, and uh, the dean really liked me, you know, and he complimented me on being you know one of the best candidates. Uh, but HR is like no, and he was like, "Look, I'm going to hire the other guy," and I'm like, "Your students are going to suffer." He's like, "It's okay." Oh no. Um, you just got me thinking a little bit about uh, the concept of uh, institutional knowledge. Because that, that does, I think, go hand in hand with like being someone who, who's been in the trenches and worked w- in whatever field. But just because um, the real person talking to you, I find I can learn more from them than from books. And I, you know, I, I imagine I can learn a little bit from books just because of my education. But as like, like, because the if you think of like the just a pure n- numerical representation of information within that university, and they're trying to find someone to bring in, they could bring in more information uh, without a degree, or less information with a degree, and they, they chose the less information. But even as these like long term institutions, again, like I come back to railroads, um, these like these institutions are going to exist for a long time, and 
railroads in particular, I've seen, um, this isn't always true, but from what I've seen, have a nasty habit of not necessarily writing things down. And that's okay if you have a constant influx of, of personnel coming in to learn. Um, but if you, if you don't have that, um, you either need to write it down or you need to start bringing that influx. And I think with the, the boomer generation exiting the workforce and kind of, well, we might relearn some processes, which we might end up getting better at. But I, I'm really cognizant of um, like who I'm working for, who I'm working with, how much information there is directly related to the work that we're doing, how much of it's being imported from other places, and what does this look like for like the long-term life of a company? Because ideally, like a, a company or a government continues on um, as any organization, uh, you know, as long as they can, nearly infinitely. And when you when you lose people. Like if, if one person is the sole guy that you go for this one thing in HR or he's the guy who writes contracts for this or he's the guy who's able to, uh, you know, put a switch together and he's gone, like he's he's gone. Like there's no there's no substituting him. Like you'll have to take the time to learn it, but it's going to be a bit of a heartache, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two really strong historical examples of what you're talking about. First is uh, the Renaissance Guild system right, in, a, in Middle Ages as well, is that, you know, this was passed on, you know, word of mouth and from a master to apprentice, right? And if the people, the guild dissolved or the people died because of some plague or war or whatever, you know, that knowledge was lost. But most recently, I saw that when Uber uh, first came to London, okay? So basically that the London cabbies, you know, follow a guild system, okay? If you want to be a taxi driver in London, and uh, at least when I was there, and drive a black cab, you basically have to become an apprentice, okay? So for two years, you go through this apprentice system where the older cabbies like put you through this training, which is not written down as far as I know. It's passed on from master's student, and you learn all the streets of London and things like that, and you basically do it, and then you pass it on and you pass it. This has been going on for... I mean, the Hackney Cab is at least from the 1800s, maybe earlier. I don't really know the history. But let's just say, you know, it's it's about 200 years, okay? Yeah. Um, and what happened uh, when Uber hit is that uh, the number of apprentices dropped precipitously, okay? Mm. Because Uber at the time, like any big corporation, if you study the, the growth of Uber, is that they undercut the costs of... Um, the London taxis. This is before surge pricing, okay? So most big companies, what they do when they come into an industry in um, any kind of business, any city in the world, is that they will subsidize it, okay? So they will undercost everybody, okay? Mm. Until they own the market and then they jack up the price. This is, doesn't matter whether you do clothes or weapons or taxis, it's the same thing. So Uber destroyed London taxis. They have recovered, Mm. to a degree okay but what happened was that these guys who were the older gentlemen uh, and ladies were retiring because they're like i don't want to compete with the young kids doing uber with their gps mm. okay and they weren't passing their knowledge on to young people who wanted to do it okay it's exactly the situation that you were talking about Jaden. is that instead of engineers it was cab drivers okay and they weren't writing it down and there was a there was a really small chance but it was really scary for us because you know if you ask people in terms of brands 
about the UK, Queen is number one, and London Cab is number two. Okay, oh, and we okay. almost lost this important historical artifact, which also gave us value, which is taking us from point A to point B, because of the guild system. So my question for you is, how would you solve it? Like, would you start writing things down? Would you get old interview old timers and make sure they do a brain dump into an AI system? Like, what do you do about it? So um, this is slightly comical, but I hope, you know, I don't think I'll be the person to solve this. And if I am, it'll be too late. But um, I have a solution. People who've known me for a little while, I come up with these crazy ideas um, that are, are, are based somewhat in truth, but they're mostly crazy. And the solution is called the pasture. So within a corporation, an organization, a group, you create a, you know, a, a department. And it's called the pasture. And the idea is, instead of retiring, why don't we put you out to pasture? You show up, you bring coffee in, you call people sport, and your only job is to have a phone on you between the hours of 9 and 5, 7 and 3, whatever it is, and to be available to help the, the new people. And, and really, it's a mentorship program. And who knows, maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be like a nine to five or whatever, but like, where am I thinking of in, like, you know, if we're trying to get, you know, if you're trying to sell this to a company, right, they have to provide something. Um, and, you know, mentorship is a hard thing to, to, to sell. But if they're part of like the, the party planning committee crew or something like that, maybe you house them in there or you house them in areas where like people don't really know what their job is anyways. We just have them available. Um, like uh, going back to railroads, there in North America, there's this uh, um, group called ARIMA. Um, American, sorry, yeah, American Railway Engineer Association, something or other. Arima. I'm gonna have to look that up. I can't remember what that's called, but they're a group and they handle all the engineering stuff for the track. And they uh, they had a mentorship program, and there's this guy named Jack who I uh, stopped talking to when I left Canada. <laughs> I should probably have called him and told him what I was doing. Sorry, Jack. Um, but uh, we would call and we would just talk, and I mean, I'd vent and complain, and he'd tell me about what happened when he was in the industry at his time. And he'd be like, yeah, this happened before. Here's when it happened. Here's what the result was. And he provided a bunch of information. And and really, because you got to have, um, I, I feel like mentorship programs are sometimes tricky to, to implement. But like to, to really go like bare bones, what would you need? Like, like I, I like, you know what? Actually, maybe it's two things. Maybe the pasture not only provides information verbally, but also starts creating some of those written books. Um, I mean, you'd have to because otherwise the, you can't scale it. Yeah. Because how many people can you mentor? Yeah. I mean, you can't. Maybe three. But, you know, three. But I mean, <laughs> but at a time. But it depends. Like, and what if you're sick? You know what I mean? And yeah, what if yeah, they're yeah. sick or not available or they yeah, get promoted yeah. or they leave the company? So I think that, you know, I mean, I am Mr. Digital. Mm-hmm. But in, I want to ask the academic in the room here is mm. that what is the best way to convert a guild system of one to one or one to three into a permanent living repository of, of knowledge? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, because I think of the people retiring and it's like how much knowledge do they have of the Internet? How much knowledge do they have of technology? How much have they avoided getting into that because they know they're just retiring soon? Because ideally, you know, you type it all up, you put it in some nice file folders and you hand it off to the next generation. But if they're not uh, adept in that way, you would need, you know, additional individuals to help them kind of navigate that process that are a little bit more familiar. So, um 
I haven't thought of the answer to this question before. But, I think, but, but you, you've, you've hit the answer right there. You said <laughs> it, takes a, it takes a team. It okay? does. It does. Um, if you look at people who are archivists, okay, people who are digitizing books, people who are saving paintings and things like that, mm. they're dealing with this problem, but they're dealing with it physically, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be a knowledge worker version of that where you have the person who is the painting, who is the source of yes, knowledge. Yes, yes. And then you have the young team whippersnappers who figure out the best way to digitize that, convert that into learning modules, yes. whatever. You know, the people who are expert into teaching and archiving, somehow saving the knowledge of the people who are retiring, yes. but yet also making it accessible and interesting for Gen Z who want to know want to know why, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff, right? <laughs> it, it'll, take, it'll take a village, right? Yes. But I think it's important. Uh, and, you know, whether it's engineering um, or any other field, you're, we're losing everything. We're losing so much knowledge mm-hmm. worldwide, mm-hmm. okay? Yes. Because generations are aging out, okay? And, and honestly, some of them don't give an F, okay? Yeah, but we have to take them kicking and screaming to make sure that either through mentorship or through these more informal digital archiving learning module systems that we create, yeah. that they pass it on. I personally think it's a civic right in the business world that people should pass on generationally. Yeah. You know? And this is interesting too. My mom just retired. She taught grade one for I don't know, at least 20 years and taught kindergarten for way before that too. And she had paper storage of all of her resources, right? She had her filing boxes and whatnot. And when she left, and I guess even before she left, she offered them up to like um, new teachers that were like, here, here is the resources that I have compiled in an in a fashion that is organized, which is which works for me and which ha- I have refined over 20 years and the student teachers didn't want them or the new teachers didn't want them because they're like, oh, it's okay. Because it wasn't on TikTok, right? Well, and it wasn't online, right? They're like, oh, I could just find resources online. But it's like, I don't, but they didn't see the value in having something that was laid out in like a, a logical fashion because I feel like you can go online and you can have everything for like your dinosaur unit. But is it logically progressed or is it just here are your resources? Sorry, did you say dinosaur unit? Of course. That's of course. awesome. I don't know what that is, but that yeah. sounds awesome. Right? <laughs> I think it's more in kindergarten in the Alberta curriculum than grade one, but it might be a little bit in both, depending on you know what your teacher wants but to talk about. But you're for pointing out, D. you know, exactly the challenge that I'm pointing out. Exactly, w- exactly. Which is that mediator or that mayonnaise in the teaching sandwich that is between you know one slice of bread, which is the retiring teacher, and yeah. the second slice of bread, which is the you know the the hipster I want to be online teacher, is that. Can there be a career for people who what they do is just connect generations Yes. regardless of the discipline? Or maybe we just specialize in disciplines like teaching, engineering, digital design, where their job is just to pass things on. You know, they're, they're the calligraphists of, you know, knowledge. I think, uh, I think it's really, because uh, you, you could create like an organization that does this or, or a group, um, but it's for anyone who wants to run with this idea, it's a three, three-step problem. Uh, data collection, data storage, and then teaching it. Uh, and I mean, not just data, uh, not just data, right? Um, like information, knowledge, and then wisdom, because um, these are people with wisdom that are that are leaving. But that's the that's the three steps. So if you, I think like if I was to propose a, 
I don't know about a solution, but uh, a possibility if someone wanted to go into it, right? If you could create something or within your company create something where you are collecting, storing, because the, the storing piece is also important. Like what Victoria just talked to is like, you know, we're not as interested, it seems, in uh, tactile storage of information, something a bit more digital. And then you've spoken uh, a bit to like, how do you, how do you teach that? Um, and, and each of those have their own distinct problems. But yeah, I think you're, I think, I mean, you, we are onto something there, but I th those are the three steps in the system. Which is the hardest. I mean, in my opinion, you know, it's not step one, step two, step three. Mm -hmm. Okay. Collecting it is finding the experts and making them do this, okay. paying them faster. Um, <laughs> storing it is a constant issue mm -hmm. because file formats change all the time digitally. I remember, I remember for anyone who is old enough, remembers zip disks, you know, jazz disks, floppy disks. I remember programming when I was like eight and we were on cassette tapes. So, and then before then it was paper punch cards, but that was before my generation. Um, but the, for me, the hardest thing is the teaching, but it's not one, two, three. Mm -hmm. You must archive, and I'm just using that word generally, you must record it on a medium, so problems one and two, in a way that's teachable. So you have to solve the third problem first, okay? So for example, um, some people are visual learners, okay? Mm. So I was one in school. Like you could lecture me for hours, but unless I wrote it down, I really had a trouble learning it, okay? So I took amazing notes, okay? Um, and I forced myself to do that, you know, whether it was biology or history or whatever, you know, so I had to write it down myself, okay? So how would you create a training program, you know, around engineering uh, or um, occupational therapy or digital design where people have to write stuff down, okay? Mm -hmm. Other people mm -hmm. are really engaged by video. So you gotta take care of the writing down people, then you gotta make videos for everything, but again, these people, these old timers aren't necessarily really good at presenting. And then again, you deal with cameras and lights and, and makeup and things like that. So how you archive and onto what and how much does that cost to archive all that stuff so that it's teachable? Because if we archive a bunch of stuff that no one can use oh. because it's not engaging, we're effed. So look at the seed bank that Norway is doing, right? So a lot of countries in the world that over the last 50 years are basically collecting all uh, seed growing plants, um, you know, not only about the rare ones, but cash crops and things like that, just in case of like apocalypse, because this is what they do. So I think the yeah. biggest one, I think it was in Iceland, but I think it is in Norway, is they have this massive thing where it's like military funded and government funded and they have all the seeds, okay? Now those are easier than knowledge, you got the seeds, you just put them in some water in the ground and boom, you go, okay? But what I'm talking about is that seeds that don't grow. You fund this whole thing, you find the experts, you collect all this knowledge, you archive all this knowledge, but because you've got different kinds of learning behavior, whether visually or video or whatever, whatever's gonna happen in 10 years where it's all done through sounds and metaverse, people can't learn. Yes. So how do you not only prepare for this next generation of learners, but make it future-proof enough that it's at least good knowledge for the next two or three generations? Would the, like, the incentives just be enough, though? 
No, but how do you solve that problem? Like, how do you predict how people will learn? Like, there are experts. Mm-hmm. It, there are experts in teaching, regardless of the subject, okay? Mm-hmm. But they're often not employed at places that are doing teaching, okay? Mm-hmm. What I mean is now corporations do teaching, governments do teaching, um, and schools do teaching, okay? And and that's fine, right? But like exactly what Victoria said is the problem between the old generation who want to do paper files and, you know, the dinosaur system, if I remember correctly, <laughs> and then the younger generation who want online, this is happening everywhere, okay? So how valid is this information if it cannot be taught I wonder with what you're speaking of too, um, if there is a, an 80% solution. And when you mentioned that you're a visual learner and that you're a part of like tech and you do design, I wonder how many people in design learn the same way as you. And I bet it's more than 50% because it's what attracts you to, to the system is because it is visual and because it does fit with the way your brain operates. But let me, just to interrupt you, I'm sorry, I would never do this on a podcast ever, <laughs> but uh, the amount of people I see take notes in my, in my field is like 10%. Yeah. Okay. Okay? So, and if they do take notes, it's digital, okay? Yeah. So either they're different than me, okay, which they probably are, Yeah. or they're not raised in a way where taking notes matters. Like I can look back on my career Mm. and I've got notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of notes. You know, I can look back at 1998 and I've got someone who's giving me a great idea in a notebook. It's like literally on paper. And uh, that can be digital. That can be online. People take really good notes. And I've actually seen some amazing stuff. There's some really, really good software. It will convert your handwriting on an iPad or whatever into searchable text, okay? Yeah. And a lot of students actually coming out of university these days are trained on the software, okay? But that's in my field, okay? I want to see if that's happening in engineering. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm sure some people are really good at it, but uh, earlier when I referenced like the 10 principles of leadership, like I've, I've got a very tactile notebook in front of me. Um, I still really like notebooks. Um, my boss actually at work, he seems to like using a bit more of a, of a different thing. I've, I've tried to find how to use uh, the more digital stuff in, in, my, in my field. But um, I think, man, you, you hit up a few different things. Um, I like to take notes because I don't always remember, remember everything. Some people are very good at remembering a lot of stuff. Some people are not so good. Um, but I think everyone benefits from a notebook. I even remember like when I was first, um, first time I ran into the concept of using notebooks regularly was when I went into uh, machining uh, at a machine shop and they just they handed me a, a pen and a paper and they're like, you're, you're not to be seen without this. And one of the most useful things I've ever had. And then obviously when I went in the military later, um, again, incredibly useful. And then now I, I'm trying out a different system. So I got a different notebook to try and use for myself, but, uh, just being able to write stuff down so you don't have to remember it, uh, and get everything organized on a piece of paper has been, well, I, I like it. Like (laughs) it makes my life easier. We'll see how people, uh, are using some of this new notebook, uh, software. Like something I think about is like when you think of um, Android versus Apple, 
Android because there were so many more manufacturers of devices that use Android. They were able to try a lot of different stuff. They had like a slide mechanical keyboard. They had big screens, small screens. Right now they got a folding screen. They're, they're trying lots of different stuff. Um, but Apple, growing a little bit slowly, is able to kind of take the best things, the things that seem to stick with most consumers, and then compile it into something. And I, I think with digital notebooks, um, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like we're still in a bit of a, a, a compiling space, which which sounds weird to me. Um, but there, there still should be, because you can, the nice thing with like writing on a tablet is uh, you can use different colors to mean different things. Um, you can still write stuff out. But even I struggle with going beyond and using the technology, what I would say, as properly. That is something that is transformative of a notebook, like something that a notebook can't do. And even I still struggle with that unless someone shows me. It's, it's, a, it's honestly, for me, it's the same thing as learning Control-C, uh, Control-V. But it, it's just about being trained. I mean, this is something which yeah. I've been really amazed. I mean, the thing that blew my mind about digital uh, note-taking was a video that um, I saw a number of years ago. And um, I promise that when this podcast comes out, I will try to include the link to this video in the description. But basically it was about uh, this like 23-year-old student or something talking about how he used uh, his iPad. Now, the technique for his iPad is the same if you were using an Android device, right? It's just you've got the digital screen and you've, you know, it's portable and you've got a stylus and things like that. And he was just showing, and I think he was in something like chemistry, right? So this is like high tech, right? High nerd stuff, right? So you've got, uh, you've got images, you've got formulas, and you've got text. So it's not just for, like, drawing. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, never cough on a podcast, but sometimes you have to. Um, and he was talking about this whole workflow, basically how he went through it. And the thing that impressed me the most was uh, searchability, right? Because I've got all these notebooks. I have all these paper notebooks, right? But if I want to find something, there's no way. And if I want to... Find, like create a system to find it. I've got to create a system to find it. Kind of like the teacher that you were talking to Victoria is I have to create a system to find my stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm spending time indexing, which I haven't done, but if I did, it would take me months or a year to go through all that stuff and create a system, which maybe it might not work. But for him, it's like everything is converted digitally and he can highlight stuff, bookmark things, you know, add, add videos and stuff like that. And just, you know, if he wants to search for like, Two years, because he was doing this as a sophomore or beginning of a junior, so the you know end of second year, third year university, and he could just look at all of his stuff, and it was all instantly accessible. Okay, and that blew my mind because that just kicked any systems ass that I could ever develop on paper, and I'm a paper guy, right? Yeah. So simply the findability, which as a digital designer for me, creating e-commerce systems or apps or websites, other than usefulness, which is that you want to use the service I'm creating, findability is number one, okay? Yeah. It's a can you find the thing you're looking for, okay? Yeah. So paper, findability is fine, okay? For yourself, like you were talking about your, 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 the, the teacher in your story, okay? But what if like you start forgetting or you you know, have Alzheimer's, God forbid, uh, or you leave and you leave this system for the next generation who can't find it because they don't understand it. 
you need digital findability. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One quick note, uh, a little bit of a joke um, that I just wrote down. Uh, I think hipsters of the future will be using paper. And that's my uh, that's my last thought on that. <laughs> I, think, I think we should wrap it up here because we've gone really, really long. I think paper is the new vinyl. Oh. Because <laughs> as of, I think this year, vinyl has now overgrown CD sales. Mm-hmm. There's a vinyl renaissance. Really? It's been, it's been wow. renaissancing yeah, for yeah, a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this year, actually, it's, or maybe 2022, it's actually like the th- thing. So definitely paper is a new vinyl. I agree with you with hipsters. Especially after we have like these technologies uh, and like screen protectors for your iPad that feel like paper. Like we've already started the migration back. So I can imagine that the full yeah, circle will sh- Shout exist. out to Paperlike. Actually, if you want to sponsor this podcast, <laughs> the best screen protector that comes closest to paper, it'll never be as smooth as it is, is Paperlike. So please sponsor uh, Jaden's podcast. Perfect. Sounds good. And then last note, um, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, loss of institutional knowledge. But uh, I want to end on a, on a happy note, or maybe not a happy note. I mean, I think it's pretty happy. Um, NASA sort of forgot to land on the moon, and they're relearning how to do it with new engineers, and they're doing it. So even if we don't quite, you know, get this whole... Uh, my wife is looking at me a little funny. No, the, All right, we're going to look this up later. It's, uh, it is true, though, for those listening who uh, are not as skeptical as my wife is. Um, they they got to go back to the moon. they got to relearn a few things. Uh, but that's okay. There's a lot of stuff written down. They don't have the same old guys that they used to. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say old, the same wise guys as they used to, but um, they're going to do it. So even if we lose the institutional knowledge, doesn't mean that we can't relearn it. Um, and just quick shout out to the Artemis mission. Uh, I might be getting my facts wrong here, but uh, they just announced the crew this week for the new Flying Around the Moon mission. And it's going to be the first woman to fly around the moon and the first African-American. So congratulations to both. Nice. That... Uh, I didn't even know about that. Fantastic. I'm going to have to look into that. I'm probably going to watch this really closely. This is the like almost eventually the moon landing in our time. Um, it, supposedly, I think the next artist mission is around the moon, but the whole plan is in the next, within the next 10 years, yeah, yeah. much sooner is to actually land and build a colony. I'm. Oh, wow. Cool. But that's for podcast next podcast. Yeah, yeah, next pod. <laughs> well, I mean, or a podcast in the future. We might do a couple between then. But all right. Uh, thanks for much coming out. Uh, good to see you. And uh, take care. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jaden. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it was great to speak with you.